p.m. East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later, how are food banks coping with the increased needs in the pandemic? Those are topics we'll tackle today. Also, our weekly conversation with MSU political science professor Matt Grossman. First up, though, if you were around Lansing in December 2013, you'll remember the terrible ice storm that left people in the dark and cold for as long as 12 days. And you may remember our first guest, Michael McDaniel. McDaniel was a U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Homeland Defense. That and his military background, he's a retired Brigadier General of the Michigan National Guard, led then-Mayor Verge Bernero to pick him to analyze the oft-criticized performance of the Lansing Board of Water and Light during and after the ice storm. McDaniel is also an Associate Dean at Western Michigan University Cooley Law School here in Lansing. We spoke to General McDaniel on Friday, first about the power of governors as they deal with the pandemic, then about his views on the state of preparedness of the federal government in coping with this crisis. General, one of the interesting uh, issues I think we're facing is we've got a president who wants to uh, get America back to work as quickly as possible, uh, and we've got a governor who's uh, extending closures uh, who take, who has control of this situation? Uh, in my mind, it's unequivocally the governor. Um, and I gotta, I've, I've gotta sort of get law professor on you for a little bit, if I could, Burl. The, uh, when, when the, um, drafters of the, uh, constitution sort of created our great document, they left because they were acting on behalf of the states. They left to the states the authority over public health and safety. Um, you know, the police power remains with the state. It was never given to the federal government. That's not to say, on a short tangent, that the, that the federal government doesn't have some police power, but it's based on the Commerce Clause. It's based upon interstate travel. If it's wholly within the state, that's entirely up to the governor. Uh, the governor can, can therefore continue this uh, for as long as she believes necessary for the health and safety of the residents and citizens of the state of Michigan. Now, at the same time, we've got the governors. We see uh, Governor Cuomo virtually every day talking about uh, the need, its needs and governors in general saying it, it, we need the federal government to tell us what to do. And, of course, uh, the federal government has uh, been saying buy your own respirators, et cetera. Uh, it, it, Could the federal government, could the president uh, even coordinate a national effort in this case uh, in which states are required to follow his lead? Yes. Uh, Different scenario there. What you're suggesting is if the government, if the president is using his authority delegated by Congress through the Stafford Act, which gives him some authority to allocate uh, using the spending clause of the Constitution, allocate resources uh, to the several states. There is absolutely a federal plan for this. Uh, and I, I'm chuckling a little bit, Burl, because when I was at the Pentagon, uh, I worked on the plan for the H1N1 uh, virus. 
you know, I was the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Homeland Defense Planning. We worked on this exact plan. The plan exists. And by the way, even then it wasn't in a vacuum. Then it was based on the SARS plan. So I am, I, I know for certain that there is a plan at the federal government level. Uh, uh, two weeks ago when the president uh, invoked the Stafford Act, the reason for doing so was so that the director of FEMA, in conjunction with the secretary for HHS, could say, okay, we're going to roll out these resources. And by resources, it could be equipment such as PPE, uh, it could be personnel, it could be funding, but we're going to roll these resources out to the several states based upon the plan that's already in place. Uh, and I don't know what happened. I don't know why it hasn't been done. Uh, I don't know what influences on uh, the president's policy or planning are in place, but that policy is there and should have been followed. Uh, the, these delays that we're seeing at the state level and the frustrations we're seeing from many governors are because they're well aware that that, that plan is there. FEMA doesn't do the plan in a vacuum when they do they part, their part. Excuse me, They've got to coordinate it with the state's emergency management directors as well. So every state knows that the plan is out there. Every state knows that the HHS and the Strategic National Stockpile is there, and they're wanting to know why they're not getting more out of the Strategic National Stockpile. I'm seeing and hearing reports um, from individuals that they allocated 25% of each state's uh, um, resources under the Strategic National Stockpile, and it's unconscionable they didn't roll out more than that, in my mind, and then use the Defense Production Act to say, okay, industry, Let's ramp it up behind that so we're, at a minimum, replenishing the stockpile. And, and drawing on your experience with Homeland Security, uh, you know, the, the president has said many times, nobody could have predicted this. Uh, in fact, I read in the New York Times that uh, there, was, uh, 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 there was an exercise a year ago in which this was all predicted. Uh, do you think the president is simply being disingenuous here? Well, um, it's not a true statement. Uh, I don't know what his motivation but in fact, for all the national intelligence estimate, which comes out every year, and most of that, of course, is classified, but there's a broad outline that is unpublished, I mean, unclassified and is published. The national intelligence estimate for the last two years, 2018 and 2019, that is one of the key threats to the United States for the next two years then, said that the key threat to the United States is a global pandemic specifically in there. So there was specific evidence uh, that this was coming based upon conditions that were that were foreseen by the uh, intelligence groups working with um, their experts, including those in the public health and epidemiologists. And of course, we knew about this in January. I mean, uh, everybody was publicly saying it in January, but we weren't paying attention to the, the intelligence that was specific to this pandemic at that point in time. So, yes, it's been known. And, yes, we've been engaged in those, those exercises. Uh, we started doing those exercises in a whole-of-government sort of approach in 2002 after the anthrax uh, threats that happened in late 2001. Uh, so uh, when you... When you say uh, we knew about it, you're, you're talking not about the general public, but you're, you're talking about uh, our federal government knew about it. Yes, yes. Everybody in government knew about it. All right. Uh, well, uh, I guess we will see uh, how this unfolds, but uh, it does sound from what you're saying that we 
shouldn't be where we are today. Is that a fair summary? I think so. Um, uh, we, we came across unprepared. We are not flattening the curve as quickly as we should be. And we shouldn't be saying this will be over in two weeks or three weeks. We don't know. We don't know enough of that. We have not enough uh, true intelligence about this virus yet. And uh, unfortunately, we're fighting it at the same time we're learning about it because we didn't do intel ahead of time uh, based upon what was being put out by you know China and other countries. Um, CDC, there, there was clear evidence that CDC was re- rejected uh, or at least ignored the information that they were getting from China early on. Um, so, yes, we're behind the curve, literally behind the curve, uh, and that curve is trending upwards still. It hasn't flattened yet, so we shouldn't be acting like we're going to be done in two weeks or two and a half weeks. Nobody can say that at this point. Mike McDaniel, thank you very much for being on City Pulse, and stay safe. Nice to hear from you again. Take care. Take care. Listening to City Pulse here on 89FM, The Impact, I'm Burl Schwartz. In the best of times, our 3,000 food banks across Michigan stay busy. Now, with massive unemployment, they face a significantly greater challenge. We spoke to Phil Knight, the executive director of the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Dr. Knight, we've got two related crises. One is, of course, the uh, pandemic. The other is uh, unemployment. Uh, How are either and both affecting the efforts uh, to keep people fed? Well, Burl, thanks for having me uh, with you today to talk about both of these crises, a crisis within a crisis for sure. The Food Bank Council has looked at this um, in waves. So wave one was definitely the schools and the children that are out of schools, and particularly that group of population that is uh, free and reduced meals at school and their families. And so last week we started really coming alongside of them and distributing uh, probably the double the amounts of food that we've uh, that we've ever distributed in a month's time, and now this week begins uh, the extraordinary wave headlined by the unemployment as well as senior citizens. And so uh, we're we're working hard. We're doing more than we've ever done, and the need is greater than it's ever been. Uh, you mentioned senior citizens. What are their needs? So there is, um, you know, a lot of great senior services across uh, Michigan. And, um, you know, and unfortunately or fortunately, many of those programs are the volunteers that help in those programs are also senior citizens. Uh, So we know that this uh, COVID-19 virus is really uh, seeking seniors and is actively pursuing them. And so it's been very dangerous for them to continue to hold congregate meetings like at senior centers. And so most of those have stood down, although they're trying to meet the need in other ways. But I think the leaders of the, the, um, the area aging agencies and uh, DHHS leadership, Robert Gordon, Dr. Um, Travis there, they've all realized that there's some gaps for senior citizens, and they've asked the Food Bank Council to come alongside of them so that we can deliver high nutritional uh, quarantine boxes to our seniors. And uh, so we're putting that process together even now. Uh, How are you dealing with the safety issue to uh, protect your volunteers? 
Yeah, great question. Uh, the safety of our teams is so important. So what with the food bankers across the state, there are seven Feeding America food banks in Michigan, and they serve all of Michigan's counties, all 83, and they do that through a network of some 3,000 different pantries. So what we've done is incorporate Governor Whitmer's uh, safety protocols into a new distribution model that is essentially a mobile distribu distribution where people drive through. They'll pull in in their car. They'll uh, declare that they need some emergency food. We'll collect a little bit of data that um, the federal government requires us to do, such as the number of people in the household. And once we determine that, they'll pop the trunk or open the back door, and we'll put a 30 to 40-pound box of high-nutritional shelf-stable food in, and uh, off they go. So no one's having to sign. There's no physical interaction. Everybody's able to keep social distancing, um, and it's been um, – it's been a very good process so far. Are quantities an issue for you yet? Uh, uh, and uh, what's your expectation in the coming weeks for uh, the need for food? So um, we have some concern about uh, the, the supply chain to the emergency food network. And, and that supply chain is different than the supply chain to the retail grocery stores. Plenty of food in the retail supply chain. No one needs to be nervous about that. In fact, I would encourage them not to, to, to squirrel away food or buy massive quantities of, of food or product because when that happens, Burl, that does put stress on the emergency food network. And so if uh, someone goes to the store and they buy a case of something where they normally would have bought two or three cans of something, uh, then the, the, the grocery store feels compelled to replace that case of whatever just flew off the shelf. And as you know, that's going to be a higher priority for the processors and the food supply chain. And so they're going to honor that Meyer or Walmart or Spartan Nash or Kroger request to replace that item rather than some of that being diverted into the emergency food network. So the short answer is yes, I have concerns about supply chain for the emergency food network, but not for the retail network. Uh, we're talking to, <clears throat> excuse me, Philip Knight, who is the executive director of the Food Back. Food Bank Council of Michigan. You're listening to 89FM here on the impact. Uh, let's go into that a little more. Uh, in, in, normally, how much do you depend on food uh, uh, from uh, supermarkets? Uh, is that, are we talking about contributions from supermarkets? Yeah, so all food banks do a retail rescue of food. And I can tell you that that's been down. Uh, last week, it could have been down as much as 80%, not quite as down as far uh, this week. But it is a support. It is a, uh, a supply for our food banks. Um, other, other supplies we have is from the federal government, from USDA and the commodity programs. Um, and so I think a lot of us, um, 
you know, looked at this, this coming uh, pandemic that now has arrived on our shores. And, um, and, and we, I think there was a little bit of underestimation about uh, when this food would be needed and should we have gotten it started into the process sooner. But nonetheless, uh, that food is not here. Uh, food supplies from, from our sources are four to six weeks out. And so we are scrambling from all food sources to make sure we have enough food to help uh, Michigan's most vulnerable citizens across our state. Uh, I realize you're a statewide organization, but you're based in Lansing, so you may have a little more knowledge about uh, the tri-county area uh, by virtue of living here. If people in our area uh, who may now be unemployed uh, uh, or otherwise are having challenges getting food, uh, need food, what do they do? Yeah, so I think the first place to start, if you find yourself in need of food, you want to reach out um, to the network via 211. Call 211, help them understand what your need is, and they have a, 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 a live updated list of where there are food distributions in and around your area and, uh, and how you can have access to those. I'm yeah, and I wasn't familiar with two on one, so just yeah, it's a great service uh, supplied to the community by the United Way. So two one one, tell them where you live, tell them that you need food, and they're going to help you find it. If someone shows up, you did mention you do a little bit of qualification. Uh, what what do people need to demonstrate in order to get food from a, a food bank? You know, so, uh, Burl, that's a great question because our attitude for the history, you know, food banking's only been around about 40 years, so we're not very old as far as institutional life goes. But what the, our, our philosophy has been that if you need food, we're going to get you food. Uh, so uh, just show up uh, and uh, make that declaration. I need, right. I need food, and they're going to do their dead-level best to get you the food that you need for you and your family. All right, and again, call 211 in order to see where you can go to get food. Absolutely. Very good. Dr. Philip Knight uh, from the Food Bank Council in Michigan, good luck to you. You're doing important work here, and thank you so much for being on City Pulse. Uh, it's my pleasure, and uh, you guys in the Tri-County area support Greater Lansing Food Bank. They're doing it for you in your area. Well put. Take Thank care. You, You're welcome. Bye-bye. This is City Pulse and 89FM, The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. In the background of the news these days is what's left of the race for the Democratic nomination for president. Caught up on that with Matt Grossman, a professor of political science at Michigan State University. Matt, when we started these conversations a few weeks ago, uh, there was a presidential campaign. Uh, is there still one? Uh, what What are you seeing happening that suggests there still is? Well, obviously, the uh, coronavirus story has overwhelmed all other uh, news, and to the extent that there is presidential campaign news, it is being filtered uh, through that uh, story. Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't important uh, dynamics changing in the race. Um, 
President Trump's uh, approval rating has actually gone up slightly, and his approval on the coronavirus uh, situation is actually higher than his approval overall, um, which seems odd to those of us who have been watching the response closely and listening to uh, experts evaluate it, um, but is consistent with a longer-term story that in times of crises, people uh, tend to give the, the president the benefit of the doubt, at least at the start. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, we're seeing some activity by Senator Sanders because he is involved in the debate uh, uh, over uh, how to respond to the virus. Uh, uh, former Vice President Biden uh, seems to be at a bigger disadvantage. Uh, do you do you see any change though in uh, Biden's momentum? Uh, toward uh, gaining the nomination? Well, I don't think that there's um, been uh, – that, that. I think his momentum has, has certainly stalled in in polls um, and in attention, um, but the dynamics of the, of the race really haven't changed. The dynamics of the race are that uh, Bernie Sanders would have to start winning primaries by 30 or 40 percentage points uh, in order to – uh, amass a majority of the delegates. Uh, so that's still an extremely unlikely uh, scenario. Um, so it could be that <laughs> Sanders will will gain in the, the polls, but at a time when it's when it's too late to matter for the outcome. Uh, that actually happened a bit last time. Uh, Sanders actually got close to Hillary Clinton in national polls, almost even. Um, but at the time that that happened, it was sort of too late uh, for it mm-hmm. to matter in the actual delegate accumulation. And of course, uh, uh, winning primaries means there have to be primaries. Uh, we had primaries two Tuesdays ago. Uh, <laughs> if we had a primary last Tuesday, I, I'm not familiar with it. Um, what, what is going to happen, uh, do you think, as far as uh, conducting primaries uh, uh, yet this year? Well, there was already scheduled to be a, a, a fairly large interruption um, until late April, um, not completely, um, but um, in terms of large primaries that had a chance to change the dynamics of the race. And uh, now states are pushing back even beyond that into June and are probably likely to, to keep pushing them back. Uh, so there isn't going to be <laughs> there aren't going to be a lot of elections to to potentially change the the dynamics of the race anytime soon. Um, The latest uh, hubbub in the race is that Sanders wants another debate and Biden has been uh, dismissing that that possibility. But I think that's tied to what you said. If if there's not an impending election, um, then it's sort of hard to to justify uh, moving forward with the dates, especially when the the race is, is near over. And any thoughts on uh, how these primaries uh, may be conducted if we remain in the, the throes of social distancing? Well, obviously, there's been an uptick in interest in uh, vote by mail, um, and there was a small amount of, of money for states in the stimulus bill that just passed uh, to help uh, prepare uh, for potential uh, vote by mail in or other early voting um, in the November election, uh, but uh, for the, the primaries, it's sort of too late to, to turn around uh, voting systems that dramatically, um, although we have seen uh, increases in, in early voting for those states that, that did uh, move forward. 
uh, with with their primaries on time. Uh, we're talking uh, to uh, MSU political science professor Matt Grossman here on 89FM, The Impact. Uh, Matt, uh, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin has drawn some parallels now to uh, the, the period uh, during the Hoover administration when we entered the Great Depression. Uh, do you see uh, some uh, political comparisons here? Well, obviously, there's a long-running uh, relationship between how the economy is doing and the president's uh, re-election. Um, that relationship hasn't been as strong, at least with approval ratings for the last two presidents, for Obama and Trump. There's been almost no relationship between economic performance and presidential approval. Um, but we still expect uh, that if the president uh, were to face a large recession, which looks increasingly likely in the year of the election, um, that that should be a major uh, detriment to his uh, reelection. I think the the tougher thing here is will there be any kind of uh, compensating uh, rally effect uh, where uh, Americans want to sort of put trust in their in their leaders? And although President Trump uh, has not gained a whole lot, um, there is a consistent worldwide pattern uh, with uh, national leaders gaining support at the time of this uh, crisis, and uh, President Trump has has gained uh, some uh, support so far. Now, will that hold up uh, when the economy is in free fall? That seems very unlikely, uh, but we just have to play out uh, that, that scenario. Uh- the Democrats, uh, led by uh, uh, their leader in the Senate, uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, slowed down the legislation that uh, uh, the Senate eventually approved. And as we talk today on Friday, uh, the House is expected to approve. And that seemed like uh, seemed politically risky, even though they they seem to be arguing uh, on the principle uh, of it. But uh, do you think uh, there is some danger to Democrats if they appear to be in any way obstructionist? Well, I don't think in in this situation that that'll be what what we'll remember. People uh, will remember that the, the bill passed, and people will have a uh, assessment of its of its effects based on you know how things actually play out. So uh, that that actually is a danger for Democrats, but not in the way that you suggested. It's just a more simple it's just a more simple uh, scenario where basically anything that currently helps the economy or looks like uh, policy is moving to address the crisis is going to end up helping President Trump and with uh, with him. The, the party of the presidency. So, um, you know, there there is a political downside uh, to acting effectively um, to address the crisis, but it's one that people are usually willing to take uh, in the in the minority uh, party, especially the Democrats in the minority party. So, uh, yes, there's a risk. The risk is just this is going to be seen as President Trump's action. Uh, he'll sign the bill. Uh, he'll be remembered as the leader at the time. Uh, that the the crisis response was ongoing, and so if it works, either to uh, stem the the decline uh, in the economy or to address the the immediate uh, crisis, then then President Trump is most likely to get get credit for it. 
people don't tend to remember the dynamics of the bill before it passes, especially one that, you know, gets, you know, near universal support by the time it passes. So um, there's not much risk in holding it up. And they did win some uh, concessions uh, from the few days of waiting. And uh, before we let you go, uh, we're seeing uh, Gretchen Whitmer getting a fair amount of uh, time on uh, national uh, news programs. Uh, how do you think uh, uh, she's performing in terms of uh, possibility of being uh, Biden's vice presidential candidate? Well, certainly too early to jump to, to that as an outcome, but um, all governors um, are uh, getting increased uh, attention and actually are uh, the, the trends are upward in approval in response to this crisis for the same reasons that we talked about it. Uh, with the with the president, people sort of have instinctually want to believe that their leaders are responding to the the crisis. They see them more. They see them taking action, and um, that uh, you know is seen positively. Uh, she has been more active than than most governors, um, certainly in uh, on national TV in responding to Trump uh, in calling for dramatic action. So um, I think her her national stature. Uh, is is going up uh, at this at this time. Um, there is an argument that uh, the vice presidential selection, which had been focused on senators, uh, might be uh, expanded uh, to incorporate some governors um, who who have some on the ground experience directly dealing with this crisis. Um, so there there is a scenario, uh, but I wouldn't uh, necessarily jump uh, to her being. Uh, you know, a top-tier candidate for the vice presidency at the moment. Matt Grossman from Michigan State University. Stay safe, and we will talk to you again next week. Matt Grossman is also director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Skylar Ashley for producing it. For City Pulse, I'm Burl Schwartz. Stay safe.